Hello. A couple of weeks ago, I caught up with Sir Gordon Messenger. We talked about his review, what he's learnt about the NHS, and what he hopes to see next. That's coming up in a moment on Health on the Line. As for me, I'm on holiday right now, observing events in the UK, but also being reminded in my visits and conversations with fellow travellers that health systems just about everywhere are under strain. I feel increasingly strongly that we've got to shift our thinking about health and care fundamentally. To move from a model in which health spending is seen as a drag on the economy, something that stops us investing in a better future. Instead, we need to see functioning and innovating health and care systems as the bedrock of our economic and social future, the foundation for a better society. Sadly, the present debate is a long way from these fundamentals. The Conservative leadership contest is spawning, headline-grabbing announcements, many of which are unhelpful. For example, Rishi Sunak's pledge to find patients who don't turn up for appointments. The Confed recognises that leaders are working hard to use their stretched resources well, including using face-to-face and online appointments. But the reasons patients do not or cannot attend their appointments will be complex. Penalising them unfairly will not solve the problem. The administrative burden fines would place on the NHS risks being considerable and almost certainly would outweigh the money brought in by the fines. We'll continue to urge politicians to undertake a reality reset about health and care, including the impact inflation is having on current funding. We can only hope that future proposals on health and care address the long-term systemic issues, including addressing the yawning capacity gap, especially in relation to workforce and capital investment. The Confederation represents health leaders, but for some time we've been saying the number one priority in investment is social care. As we've been saying in the media, more than nine in ten NHS leaders have warned us of a social care workforce crisis in their area, which they think will get worse this winter. And nearly all our NHS leader members across the health and care system say the lack of capacity in social care is putting the safety of patients at risk. More than four in five of our members have warned that the absence of care packages for people to be able to return home or to be moved into a care home is the main reason why medically fit patients are stuck in hospital longer than they should be. And this, in turn, is a huge factor in the higher demand on A&E departments and longer ambulance response times that we're currently seeing. We've absolutely got to tackle this social care crisis if we are to end ambulances sat outside A&E departments for hours. So even from where I'm sitting on holiday, I can see that NHS leaders are facing an incredibly challenging job right now, even though it's the middle of summer, and it's only going to get more challenging. So it's important these leaders get the right support and development. And on that topic, over to this week's interview. New ideas. Big debates. Meeting the changemakers. Transforming services. I'm Matthew Taylor. And this is Health on the Line, brought to you by the NHS Confederation. So I'm delighted to be joined for this edition of Health on the Line by General Sir Gordon Messenger. Gordon joined the Royal Marines in 1983. He became Chief of Staff at Joint Force Headquarters in 2004. From 2010 to 2012, he served as Chief of Staff Operations at the Permanent Joint Headquarters. In January 2013, he assumed the position of Deputy Commander at NATO's Allied Land Command in Izmir, Turkey. In 
July 2014, he became the Deputy Chief of Defence Staff Military Strategy Operations in the MOD. I'm saying all of that because we can sometimes forget, we are so focused on ourselves in the NHS, we can sometimes forget how distinguished Gordon's career was before he came into our orbit. Because, of course, we know Gordon better uh, as the author, the joint author with Dame Linda Pollard of the Messenger Review into NHS Leadership. Gordon, welcome to Health on the Line. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, let, let's kind of go back to the beginning and the announcement of the review in October of last year. When you agreed to do this, I'm assuming you didn't agree immediately, but you kind of reflected on it. What led you to agree to do it? What did you hope would come out of it? And to what extent have those hopes been fulfilled? So um, I'll answer the, the, the second bit first. I mean, what, what I hoped would come out of it would be that I and the team uh, are, are around me would be able to add value uh, and to uh, recommend improvements that essentially were beneficial to the workforce of the health and social care. And to me, that sounded like a, a, a you know a, a laudable uh, goal. I didn't know at the time uh, how achievable it was because I was truly um, an outsider to both healthcare and uh, and social care. Uh, but when asked uh, and when uh, having discussions about the terms of reference, uh, I felt that there was a, 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 a potential, um, and that is why I, uh, I I agreed to do it. At the end of that process, has it has it lived up to your expectations? Has it exceeded <laughs> your expectations, or uh, <laughs> I mean, what 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 has changed in your kind of perspective as a result of of the process? I, I wasn't short of, um, of of observations, I would say. So um, the idea that this was a, a sort of mature, perfectly formed approach to leadership and management in um, healthcare and social care, I quickly uh, realised wasn't the case. Um, I uh, recognised that um, within both sectors, there was a workforce that was actually really quite desperate for improvement and desperate for change, but somehow struggling to um, enact that because of, um, I don't know, levels of empowerment and, and pressure um, uh, elsewhere in their in their profession. I mean, you ask how well I did. I mean, obviously, it's for others to, to, to make the judgment on, on how we did. But I would like to think that this was a review that was um, that, that, that sought to improve the lot of the workforce in healthcare and social care. And I'm of the view that if the recommendations are enacted, that that will lead to that um, that, that that improvement. This was not about beating up any or all part of uh, of the workforce. It was recognising that they were doing a first class job in really quite difficult uh, circumstances, um, and that they deserved the best working environment and the best leadership and behaviours around them that they could uh, that they could have. You, as I described at the outset, had a life in the military, what, what would you say were the kind of biggest differences and also the biggest similarities between the culture that you experienced as a soldier and the, the culture of the NHS? In, in terms of military leadership, I mean, the, the, the military is structured in a very hierarchical way. Um, people uh, understand leadership in that they understand when they see leadership, they understand what being led and leading uh, looks like and feels like. Uh, and um, I think that makes leadership in the military in some regards e you know, easier than many other sectors. 
I don't think that that um, uh, sort of simplicity of structure and hierarchy exists uh, across the board, and therefore it can be more complicated to lead and to manage well uh, in, in in healthcare because um, the the uh, relationships and the responsibilities and the accountabilities aren't always as clear as they are in the military system. I suppose the other difference I would say is that in in the in the military there's a very sort of a strong emphasis on teams, team building. There's a recognition that that the the toughest of challenges can only be uh, surmounted if one can create that team and um, use that collective spirit and that unity of purpose to to achieve things. I saw that in bits of um, our uh, investigation into healthcare and social care, but I didn't see it as often as I. Uh, might have expected. And one of the recommendations talks about how one needs to balance, you know, your approach to the task ahead with the building of the team and the managing of the individuals within the team. And an observation is that whenever there is crisis, whenever there is pressure, one tends to focus um, often myopically on the task. And that comes to the detriment of the uh, the team and the individual, and I would strongly recommend that a rebalancing would um, be of value. So let's start looking at, at some of the recommendations, Gordon. And let, let's start with the first, uh, which is around kind of collaborative leadership and organisational values, induction, mid-career programme. So I want to try and get to the essence of what lies behind this. That that this, in a sense, is. That that we that we need at the beginning and in the middle to remind people, remind leaders in particular, why we're doing what we're doing, and, and so the purpose of what we're doing and the values that underpin it. So it's a kind of, it's almost a kind of focusing process that, as you say, we can lose sight of the fundamental reason why we want to lead in the public sector or in health. We can lose sight of the the values that motivate us behind the day to day pressures and. And therefore, instilling it at the beginning, renewing it in the middle—is that—is that, is that get, does that get to the essence of that recommendation? It, it really, it really does actually. And I'm glad you picked that up because I actually some—I I regret um, the emphasis of the word induction on that particularly part of that recommendation because that sort of throws up, um, you know, the notion of you know here's your fire exits and um, here's your sort of leave policy. Um, when actually it was all about exactly as you described, taking key moments in anyone's career. And it's not just about leaders. It's about anyone who chooses uh, a profession in, in healthcare and and social care. And, and, and using that key moment, which everyone shares, the moment at which they join the organization to set the culture, set the expectations, build awareness of what it is that they're there to do, ideally build awareness of the uh, the system as a whole rather than the specific part that they are planning to join and to, and to maximize that moment to try and you know build a sort of collective identity um so i joined the royal marines in 1983 uh, it didn't take long for me to have that sort of cultural sort of ethos implant in me which which sat with me for the rest of my career uh, and I think there's something quite powerful about that if you can get it right. I think there's a risk of it being over-centralized. I think there needs to be a certain amount of central 
um, sort of, you know, branding and value setting. Uh, but it also needs to have, you know, the right amount of um, of, of local uh, variety to tailor it to the to, to the location of the workplace. But that 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 as as you describe it is exactly how this recommendation sees itself. So let's move on to the to, to the second, uh, which was around kind of deepening our commitment to equality, diversity, and inclusion. Now, amongst your critics there has been the kind of suggestion that you have somehow been captured by the health service blob and that 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 this focus on edi to use the shorthand is is kind of evidence uh, uh, of that and there's a significant implication that you had kind of you had to write this stuff because that's what's expected if you do anything for the nhs now i know you and i've spoken to you and i know that it's that's not the case so tell me in a sense, why you felt this was so important. Is it part of trying to get people to see that EDI is not something that you do as a hygiene factor, but it's actually integral integral to the vision and purpose of NHS leadership? Yeah, again, thank you. I, I, I didn't feel uh, captured in any way. Uh, I don't regret uh, any of the uh, points they make, and I would continue to make them uh, now, despite, as you say, the, uh, the criticism. So to me, it, 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 it is clear that that how those with protected characteristics are always treated and the equality of uh, opportunity for those with protected characteristics is not where you would want it to be for an organize, for any organisation and particularly for an organisation such as uh, the National Health Service. So uh, it is an area which, uh, which requires focus. Um, and that's uh, at the more extreme end in terms of sort of discrimination, but it is also about the sort of equality of opportunity and making this a real level playing field where everyone is judged by their skills, experience and qualities rather than by any other uh, uh, any other form. The other, I think, really key thing about the EDI is it's almost a sort of bellwether of how an organisation values its workforce more generally. Um and if you get that if you get that bit wrong, um, then I think it it sends a message about um, how much value is associated and um, and given to the to, to the workforce as a whole. So for a variety of reasons, um, I, I felt it was it was really important. Um, and to get it right says such a sends such a strong message um, about the organisation as as a whole. And you know we very much welcome this element of your report, and I totally agree with you. Uh, Gordon, it's a journey I've gone on as a leader. I think, you know, moving from seeing in, in equality, inclusion uh, as something which you should do as a kind of because you're a virtuous person, you want to do the right thing, into something which is absolutely essential yeah. to being a, being a good manager, particularly obviously being a good people manager, but also really being committed to maximize the impact the benign impact you have in, have in the world on 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 that i would also say that the recommendation too was specifically about um uh, edi but i would like to think that almost all the other recommendations are, have a very positive uh, approach to a more equal, uh, a more level playing field in terms of how people are trained and developed, how people are selected, how people are, are, are um, uh, you know, managed. Um, I would like to think that all recommendations, how people are appraised, um, uh, are um, uh, are likely to lead to um, a beneficial uh, outcome for for EDI. So let's turn to, to recommendation the, the third and the fourth recommendation. So consistent management standards. 
delivered through accredited training and a simplified standard appraisal system for the entry. I'm going to put these together with, with a with a reflection from my own career and from my experience of talking to other people. So, you know, I, I'm incredibly impressed by the leaders that I speak to in the health service. And one of the reasons I enjoy talking to them, and I'm sure it was the same for you, Gordon, is is the is the kind of is the colour they give in terms of the particular challenges they face in their community. Sometimes it's quite prosaic things like the kind of problem of the estate, the hospital they've got, the, where the, the, the space stops them doing things they want to do, whatever it might be. And Now, that's really important. And, and throughout my leadership career, I've offered accounts of why a particular context is difficult and challenging. But I suppose I want to say this without being unsympathetic to any of that. It's all real. It's all important then in a sense, sometimes that sense that one is uniquely, in a uniquely challenging context, there's something very particular about one's context, can almost be a way of of avoiding the fact that in the end, there are some core things that good leadership is about. There are perspectives, there are skills, there are ways of dealing with problems, which are more generic. And is that is that what these kind of points are trying to get us to is is to say that we have to balance all the kind of specificity of every job and every organization with a recognition of of those things which are common to the NHS leadership experience so it was definitely about that but it was about i hope a little more than that um uh, I was surprised at just how sort of unstructured and almost random the sort of training and development of managers were, was as it, as it went through. Obviously, there are plenty of opportunities to train and, 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 and to develop, but they're not in any way sort of mandated or sequenced. Uh, um, very rarely, um, to my knowledge, is um, uh, a, a certain training and develop opportunity a prerequisite to, to, to anything. And, and so... Trying to um, recognise that that the, that sort of slightly random, slightly arbitrary route to to becoming a a professional manager with all the skills both of leadership but also of management is key to the sort of status and the confidence of individuals as they go through their career. Uh, and, we, and we got a strong sense from those managers that they would they they wanted that. We had a number of conversations about whether managers should be an accredited profession or whether the training that they uh, undergo uh, should be accredited training on a, in a more consistent way and we went down on the second of those two two routes but what i would like to think is that um people become more of a known quantity you know i when i went through my um my my career i wasn't appointed as gordon messenger i was appointed as someone who was deemed to be in a certain bracket in terms of quality i i'd been through the following you know the, the you know a number of of uh, training um uh, serials that were well recognized and understood in terms of what that gave me as as, as a skill set and um i was struck by just how sort of individual some of the uh, appointing choices were some of the um uh, promotion choices were 
Um, and I, I felt, and I got this a lot from uh, the managers that we spoke to, um, that they they felt that something more consistently delivered and, and accredited and recognised would um, uh, would both level the playing field, uh, but also give them a better chance to have the skills that they need to, to to do the jobs they've been asked, the very difficult jobs they've been asked to do. And that framework wouldn't be kind of frozen in aspect, would it, Gordon? This would be something which would which would evolve and in a way having this kind of common framework enables us to reflect from time to time on whether it's still right what needs to be added to it what needs to be taken away from it yeah definitely and and one of the things we shied away from and i'm very glad we did was to try and get into here's the specifics of what the content of these things should be this was seen as a sort of modularized approach which no doubt will have some mandatory elements to it you know in terms of probably in leadership but we'll have some variety depending on what profession what type of manager uh, what what professions uh, they they're in what what their preferences uh, or interests might be the other point on this is that this was tailored as a recommendation around managers but i would like to think that for clinical leadership what you have is a, a sort of off the shelf modular approach to improving leadership and management um, the choice the, the, the choice might be reduced um, a little from the various options that people have now but it's a it's an it's an off the peg I want to improve my uh, my uh, leadership or my management as a clinician. I can go away and and select this or this or this module uh, to try and uh, improve my skills in that regard. So uh, we we we're, we're hopeful that um, whilst the original uh, and and uh, that the first uh, audience for this will be the managerial cohort, that it could have relevance beyond that. What was your kind of reflections on? the kind of path to leadership that you see in the NHS. This is something which I didn't really fully appreciate before I came into the job. And, you know, the, the vast majority, I think I'd be right in saying, of leaders in in, in the NHS have some kind of clinical background, but not all. Um, and, and we're seeing more leaders now who are from kind of allied health professions. There's, you know, it, 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 do you have any kind of reflection on 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 the on the the path that leaders take, and do you think it, it's 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 broadly right the kind of balance of people with a clinical and non clinical background? I, I don't think it is necessarily right. One of the observations again, I, there was a great team that I had, so I'm, I've used the word I too too often, but because of my specific military background, I was surprised that leadership was often viewed in it, it through a, a small relatively small number of positions and that that sort of recognition or acknowledgement that frankly everyone uh, regardless of uh, of role has some form of leadership responsibility and therefore can develop in that responsibility as soon as a nurse passes out of graduate training he or she are um, leaders, uh, people look to them, look to their behaviours. They look to them for example. The same is true of doctors. The same is true of of AHPs, and the same is true of managers. Regardless of what level, at people are looking at you, and they're 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 looking at you for example, and they're looking at you for leadership. And I felt that that you know everyone's a leader, everyone's a team player ethos, and you can be both at the same time. Um, I I felt. Um, wasn't as strong uh, as it could be, and and that that entry level, um, I'll call it induction, uh, could be an opportunity to try and uh, instill that. To your specific question about leaders, um, I, I think we could see more from the clinical side of the house in terms of uh, leadership. 
um, and investment in system outcomes. Obviously, there are many, many clinicians who uh, invest huge amounts of time and energy uh, into that. But occasionally, but, but there are also some that do not. Um, and uh, to me, a recognition by clinicians that they truly are leaders, whether they uh, wish that moniker or not, um, and, and a, a bit of investment in how to um, behave, act, uh, and to uh, and take responsibility beyond your immediate clinical specialization, I thought was uh, something that again, could, could be more universal. Uh, I know, and you, you acknowledge this yourself, that you, you weren't able to spend a great deal of time looking at primary care. But I think, you know, as the organisation that represents primary care, as well as the organisation that represents uh, systems and, 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 and trusts, we, my, my sense is that what we've done in primary care is we've asked the primary care team, often GPs, not always, but we've asked them to take on leadership roles without really thinking through the 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 support that they need to go on that on that journey and i think if we take forward the recommendations of the fuller review for example we see more kind of neighborhood planning we are going to have to invest as she recognizes more in enabling people to take that that journey uh into a kind of broader leadership role let's let's go and turn to the fifth recommendation which is a new career and talent management function for managers. And that sounds a bit dry. What I what I kind of took from that was a sense of responsibility at regional and national level for kind of the stewardship of 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 talent. That that just as we would you know accept responsibility for as it were the resource that is the estate, for example, that we should we should we should have a more explicit sense that it is the responsibility you, you you talk about regions particularly in this recommendation but also of the center to to steward the leadership the overall leadership capacity uh, of the nhs and to replenish it and to keep it uh, you know to keep that pool in the kind of state that we need it to be in was that was that part of what what you're getting at here it, it absolutely absolutely was stewardship is a, a, a good um, a good word but i think it's stewardship that needs to view this um in two ways. Firstly, support to the individual in making the right career choices, um, giving them, giving them um, uh, what their opportunities, their development uh, profiles might uh, uh, might look like. Having you know honest conversations with them about you know strengths, weaknesses, areas uh, for improvement, or areas for, for greater experience. So there's certainly that. And then the second is how do you how do you, you get the most from the system as a whole from your workforce? So you need to take this, you know, a a health service approach to this. You know, people we we know that le- leaders will be better if they have broader uh, experience, if they've moved out of um, uh, narrow areas of of specialization into something uh, broader, if they've got greater experience of the system, if they've got uh, experience of where the health sector uh, abuts other sectors. Arguably, if they've got experience at various levels um, in terms of uh, local, um, uh, regional, national, and, and we should we should absolutely add uh, system into that. So how can you dovetail those two resp- stewardship responsibilities whereby people feel better supported uh, but they're also encouraged to um, develop to the benefit of the the organization as a whole and to generate something that that again rather than the slightly random route to the top and that um 
slight marketplace feel to how uh, senior executives are selected, that you have a natural percolation in the system that, that, that develops the right skills and the right experience to the right place and, 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 it, and ensures that those with the, the, the most skills and the most talent naturally percolate to the top. Penultimate recommendation is around effective recruitment and development of non-executive directors. And uh, and again, I think this is a very welcome focus for your work. I mean, I, again, for me, Gordon, coming into the NHS from the outside, you know, I had had experience of non-execs, which was being kind of pretty mixed, both being one actually, and also sometimes being subject to their slightly random influence. Of course, non-exec roles in the NHS are much more kind of substantial, I think, than, than, than often non-exec roles are and and I think thinking hard about non-execs is, a, is really important so for example I just give you one example I'll ask you to comment on that it, it, reflecting your overall view which is I think in systems there is a challenge um, which is how do you ensure that ICSs ICBs are genuinely empowering and enabling bodies not bodies that end up adding kind of layers of bureaucracy now, I think that a lot of, I speak to a lot of trust chief executives and, and you know, they, they get it and they want ICSs to work. But actually, sometimes it's the non-executive directors of trusts who are the ones who feel rather excluded by this. You know, there they have been influencing their organization and suddenly their organization is being asked to work in a much more collaborative way, which which can mean that they feel their influence is, is diminished. And I, I've been very impressed, for example, in Suffolk, I think it is, they, they've created a non-executive directors forum, which brings together the NEDs in the system, in the trusts, and some local councillors, in order that everybody kind of feel part um, uh, of this. It is, it is really important that we understand the resource that NEDs are, and that we ensure that they do feel a, a strong sense of ownership of what's happening around them. Yes, and, and of course they have that accountability for um, for, for the organisations uh, that they that, that they're on the board of. But but to to your point, actually, if you've managed to sort of you know generate the types of things that happen in in Suffolk, they become a, a natural conduit for for collaboration beyond trusts, um, between trusts, between sectors. So if you get the right you know the right people in um people who uh recognize that this this shift this huge shift towards a system built upon collaboration rather than on competition then what we want are not people who are um going to drill into their own solely drill into their own little stovepipe of responsibility we want people who are looking up and out and are a natural sort of lymphatic system uh you know a parallel system to to encourage the sorts of collaboration that as you say we hope to see from from ICBs and ICPs to your final recommendation which is in a way one of the ones that got the most kind of publicity i guess because it's kind of easiest for the layperson to understand which was kind of how do we get the brightest and best to go to the most challenging places and 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 i think the, 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 there've been various attempts to do this over the years of, and they've achieved pretty mixed results and i, I think it's really important isn't it Gordon, that we take a a kind of very human view of this my my friend paul corrigan has done a piece of work which i i think one day will 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 we'll be published in one form or another where he he spoke to a number of chief executives who had done this. And what you said was fascinating was that some of the issues they had 
were not the kind of titanic organizational struggles. It was that they arrived in a new place. They didn't know anybody. They had to find somewhere to live. They had to find a school for their children. He, he describes quite a kind of lonely process as people are sent to challenging assignments. So if we're going to do this, it is, you know, of course, it's about pay and about status and about people knowing that 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 they'll be supported even if they don't succeed straight away. But but we we really need to remember we're asking a lot of human beings, aren't we? We we, we are, and this this was one of the toughest areas because a lot of at the moment it is counterintuitive. It is truly brave to take some of these uh, these these roles, and one doesn't have to look too far back to see how one could become a cropper. Um, uh, if if uh, things don't play out as as you'd want, so that point about support, which is it has to be from within the system, but I think there's there's a, there's a strong political uh, part to that too. There needs to be realistic uh, timeframes given. There needs to be um, uh, backed up promises of support. Um, and backed up promises that this doesn't necessarily mean to be a one a, a, a one way journey. That this this absolutely could and should be a waypoint in any successful career. Uh, and it goes back to that point about the needs of the individual balanced against the needs of of the organisation. If one can, if one can make these jobs, you know, the most desired jobs rather than the most feared jobs, because of the status and the uh, that, that that one gets, because of the uh, support one gets, and because that it really becomes a sort of uh, a rite of passage for. Um, uh, for for future jobs, then you start to you, you start to challenge some of that counterintuition that 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 certainly exists uh, that certainly exists at the moment. I think the other thing is um, that that chair relationship with the chief exec strikes me as really important in these mm-hmm. places because you know as you say you you know being in charge of challenged places can be a very lonely place to be uh, and having support and sounding boards and, and and those two individuals working as a team strikes me as a really critical part of the jigsaw so god i could i could talk to you for hours but i'm going to bring things to close but just want to focus on a couple of the sort of slightly more controversial elements of of, of the of the process so the, the first is i mean well, you know, we're we're grown ups. You, you, you know, you may have a military background, but you're—I could tell—you're a sophisticated political player. I guess you knew that there were going to be briefings about why the why you were asked to do this, about what was going to happen. I mean, did that irritate you that there was this kind of manager bashing narrative in the background that you had to kind of push against? Because I remember when I spoke to you, and you know, we were proud to host a number of events for you. You were at pains to kind of say, look. You know that narrative's nothing to do with me. Yeah, um, it it uh, you, yes, it does annoy me. Um, you know that sort of sort of deliberately toxic um, uh, headline grabbing politics is not something I en- enjoy. I would tell anyone that. So this isn't me being disloyal to my sort of political masters, if indeed I have any anymore. Um, but no, I, I didn't find <laughs> that particularly edifying. No, well, it's not. And, um, uh, but I thought you handled it incredibly well, if I might say so. And actually, you know, Gordon, that there was a certain amount of distrust when your uh, review was announced. But by the end of the process, I think everybody was looking forward to your results and welcomed them as well. So you, 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 you pushed against that very effectively. Of course, something that we raised with you a lot and other people raised with you was a regret that you weren't allowed to look at the centre. And since you've reported, we've heard NHSE are going to cut 
you know, 30% of their jobs. I was speaking to Richard Meddings, the chair, the other day about the challenge of sustaining momentum when you're going through an organizational change that big. The, the center is involved in a kind of a process of organization or of kind of re- re- renewing its operating model and new members of the executive. It, the center was out of review for you, but you, you, you finished now, and I hope this isn't unfair. Would you be willing to share with me any any reflections you would have about about how the center should go about changing its operating model, given what you heard from speaking to leaders in the field? Actually, the center wasn't explicitly out of scope. I know that was that was a um, something that was uh, 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 said, but um, at no point was I explicitly told that. Um, so, so yes, I am prepared to share. I mean, it, it was it was quite clear that you know the 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 relationship between the center and the rest of the organization wasn't always what it would be the the, the sort of this sort of notion of uh, poorly expressed um central diktats upon a a hard pressed system um uh, that was struggling to 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 cope was was something that we heard um uh, a number of times the, the the only thing I'd say is that firstly there, there was a there was a very new team. Uh, Amanda uh, had only just arrived when uh, we started and was putting together a team and clearly had her priorities of her own. So it's it felt a little um, unfair to to drill um, uh, too much into that. Uh, secondly, if you want to enact change. Um, in an organization through recommendations through an external perspective it becomes really hard if you're if, if everything you do is at odds with the the very organization and and um and structures and people that that would be uh, most influential in driving that change so so i'm not in any way suggesting that uh that you know the center has got everything right i'd say that they are under huge um, uh, political pressure, and I saw many times an attempt to to act as a shock absorber um, for that uh, political pressure, rather than just pass it on. I suppose my my my, my key observation is on, on that, and it based it's based around that operating model. Any good operating model ha- defines what functions and accountabilities are held at what level. Um, and um, I, I I felt that. Um, uh, uh, too often, um, uh, things that should have been set um, by the centre um, were too sort of dissipated and, and, and distilled, setting cultures, setting some sort of workforce policies and the like, um, uh, arguably uh, could have benefited from a slightly stronger uh, central hand of the tiller. And other things that absolutely would sort of flourish and improve best if... if um, uh, allowed to be tackled um, locally, uh, perhaps had too much um, uh, central sort of oversight. It's very, very easy to say that, very hard to try and get it. But I suppose what I would say is that the, the, the work that's being done on an operating model, uh, if it if it succeeds in in identifying responsibilities and accountabilities uh, at each level, minimizing sort of overlap. And, and maximizing clarity, then I think there's an opportunity there. Yeah, no, I agree, and I, I, I you know, our focus is particularly on ICSs yeah. and 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 how it is we ensure that they can be 
truly empowering and enabling bodies, very different from what we've seen before, not a bureaucratic layer, but but as it were, an organization which which is primarily focused on making the rest of the system work effectively rather than kind of second guessing what the rest of the system does. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, there's an echo there. I think there's an opportunity here for the center to model the behaviors that it wants to I, see. I agree. At system level. Final, final question, Gordon. I mean, and I speak from some position of kind of experience and pain here myself. So it's it's five years, or it was five years, two weeks ago, since the review I did for Theresa May about employment law. And when I published my report, the government immediately enacted all the things that it could enact in secondary legislation and promised an employment uh, bill to enact nearly all the other recommendations. Well, five years later, we're still waiting for that employment bill. So um, Gordon, what, 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 what are you doing anything or have you got any advice for those of us who support your recommendations? Do you have any kind of perspective on the likelihood of, 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 of implementation? What, what will you be watching out for to see whether or not in the end your report turns into action? Uh, I mean, I mean the, in the, the, the period after um, submitting the report, I was involved both with uh, senior leadership in the department, in social care, local government and uh, the National Health Service um, as to how implementation might be taken forward. And um, we, we've spent a bit of time on what the model is, how how we try and uh, drive um, ever uh, more collaboratively um, our approach to, to social care and health care. And they were fruitful positive conversations by a team who uh, clearly saw uh, merit in in the recommendations and and wanted to take them forward. Uh, The challenge, of course, comes when, you know, urgency after urgency just sort of drowns out um, uh, the focus on them. What I would like to see is um, a, a strong and continual statement from the leadership, the people of influence, um, that uh, a focus on the workforce, a focus on uh, leadership is something that is utterly central to better patient outcomes and better productivity, because I, I truly believe it is. Um, but it's the sort of thing that can get lost in, in the noise unless it has that constant uh, drumbeat from the centre. I don't care whether they're badged as messenger review uh, recommendations or not. I just want to see that investment in people, that investment in um, uh, in, in, in leadership, because I truly believe that is the route to make the work the workplace a much more productive one. Uh, and that has to be to the benefit of, uh, of, of public health more broadly. Well, Gordon, we'll be doing all that we can at, at the Confed to also support that focus on leadership, investing in leadership, valuing leadership. Gordon Messenger, thank you so much for joining us on this edition of Health on the Line. Thanks, Bethany. You've been listening to Health on the Line from the NHS Confederation. Visit nhsconfed.org for more information about us and to register for events and webinars that delve deeper into the issues explored in this podcast.